When many Americans think of Egypt, they might think of mummies, pyramids, and the Nile River. And although Egypt has a rich cultural history, it's also a really important player in international politics. Egypt is one of the U.S.'s most valued allies in the Middle East. With a new administration in the White House, there's a possibility that relationship could change. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Casey Candela. Today, I'm joined by James Ketterer, an expert on the Middle East and a Fordham University graduate. Right now, he's a dean at Bard College, but he spent a number of years working for non-governmental organizations in the Middle East. You served as the director of Ahmed East. Uh, that's an NGO that works in Egypt, was one of the oldest, um, one of the most established. So can you tell me more about the work that you did there and how that um, might have affected U.S. policy in Egypt and how it played an important role in the U.S.-Egyptian dynamic? Yes, I, so Ahmed East is uh, an organization that was started after World War II uh, in an attempt to um, create better bridges, more sustainable bridges between the United States and the countries of, uh, the, in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, it is largely focused on educational and cultural affairs, so it's not really involved in any overt political work. It does work closely with the U.S. government uh, and with U.S. embassies across the region. It's represented in, in most of the countries across the region, though not in some countries right now because of security reasons. It's been in Egypt since 1956 continuously, uh, has a very large operation in Cairo, and also in uh, another smaller office in, in Alexandria. And it really focuses on education, culture, and exchanges between the United States and, and Egypt. So it runs a large English language training program for Egyptian high school students. It gives things like the SAT exam. Egyptian students take um, a lot of SAT exams. It's used within Egypt and for any student, obviously, who wants to come and study in the US. Uh, and then a variety of other kinds of um, professional development programs. Uh, at that time that I was there, we had an education abroad program that would bring Americans to Egypt um, to study Arabic and to study other courses and to study alongside Egyptian students who um, were assisting them with learning, learning Arabic. In addition, I worked closely with the embassy on kind of special programs like uh, classic cultural diplomacy programs, bringing uh, jazz groups to, to Egypt, um, having people come to Ahmed East and give presentations on poetry, on other aspects of American culture. And so it was a really fascinating time to be there. I think uh, what Amadis does is, is crucially important, um, seen as one piece of the larger work that the U.S. government does on public diplomacy. I should also add, though, that Amadis is not just a creation of the U.S. government. That, that constitutes about half of its funding. Uh, we also worked directly with the Egyptian government and with other Egyptian entities like the Suarez Foundation that runs a large a scholarship program that sends Egyptian students to the U.S. and we we helped to um, identify top quality applicants for for that program. How did Ahmed East function as you know soft power in Egypt particularly during a time after the revolution when anti-American sentiments were at an all-time high? I think the value of Amadeist is that it's able to do that kind of educational and cultural work without um, being an instrument of official American policy. Though it is an American institution, the work that it does is separate from official policy. Sometimes it's funded by the U.S. government, and sometimes it's carrying out official U.S. government programs, but I think its value 
to Egypt and to the United States and the relationship between those countries is that it's, it's able to avoid the heat of any specific policy of the moment and really focus on kind of the long-term development, um, educational development of Egyptians who want to learn English, who want to learn more about the United States, in some cases who want to come study in the United States. And at that time when I was there, about Americans who want to come to the Middle East and spend time learning about Egypt and, and learning Arabic. And the, the value, the long-term value of that to both countries um, is certainly very high. And, and it's certainly of interest to the United States government and to the government of Egypt. But I think it's also of interest to individuals who are just seeking to deepen their knowledge, um, either to advance in their careers or knowledge for the sake of knowledge. So Egypt is not a country that traditionally, you know, dominates the news cycle as far as Middle Eastern countries are concerned. Um, there's no, I guess, major conflicts going on there right now. But why should Americans care about Egypt as a strategic ally for the United States in the Middle East? Many Americans know about Egypt from the pyramids, other sorts of antiquities. They have a sense of Egypt. Maybe it's one place they might have been over the years as tourists and had a certain kind of experience with it that really is separate from uh, international relations and American foreign policy. It's a place that's in the imagination of Americans, but I don't think, as you have said, there's not a lot of detail on politics of the moment and the importance of Egypt to the United States and vice versa. It's clearly very important. So geostrategically, Egypt is important because of the Suez Canal, that this allows for transit through the canal, through the Mediterranean, around to the Persian Gulf, whether it's for oil tankers, for other shipments, for the U.S. Navy, um, that's just a crucial spot, not only for the United States, but for the allies of the United States and for, for the entire world. Also, Egypt has a long-standing peace treaty with Israel, and so the maintenance of that peace treaty is seen as part of a core interest for the United States. Egypt and the United States have many exchanges of military personnel. Even President Sisi spent some time studying here at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And there are many American military people and diplomats who have spent time serving in, in Egypt. So there are lots of ties, official ties, between the two countries. Since the Camp David peace accords, um, Egypt has been the recipient of a large amount of U.S. aid on an annual basis. There's been a few times when that's been suspended or, or lessened, but that's relatively short and relatively small. Um, it's been fairly consistent over time. There's a large USAID mission there that carries out a wide variety of development projects. There's a large U.S. embassy there. In addition, there's the American University in Cairo. It's not an official institution of the U.S. government, though it is chartered in New York State and accredited by, by middle states. It is one of the kind of flagship American universities around the world, and certainly in the Middle East, AUC, the American University in Cairo, and AUB, the American University in Beirut, are, are the two predominant and prestigious American universities in the region. So there's many ties, many relationships. Now that having been said, when I was there, one of the things I was working on was to increase the movement of people back and forth, to bring more Americans to Egypt, and especially to bring more Egyptians to the United States to study. The number of Egyptians studying in the United States has been consistently low over the past couple of decades. 
a little over 2,000 a year. And that's just far too low for a country of, of approximately 90 million people. And so the U.S. government is doing a bit more to try to up those numbers. And uh, when I was there, and even now back here in the States, working at Bard College, I've been working to increase that number as well. I think it's good for the relationship, and, it, and it's good for the students who are studying in each other's countries. I think the value of that, the long-term value of that, is worth the investment. So let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, for my listeners who might not know, what are the Camp David Accords? Why are they so important? And additionally, why do you think that they were upheld and how did they survive the revolution through you know, President Morsi and now President El-Sisi? So the Camp David Accords were signed in the late 1970s when Jimmy Carter was U.S. president. And they're called the Camp David Accords because he brought the key players to Camp David, to the presidential retreat. So Anwar Sadat, Menachem Begin, came there, and they spent several days, 13 days, essentially locked away there, working out the details on a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. Now, this followed on, you know, some fairly major conflicts in the region, particularly 1967, 1973, and some other um, continuous conflicts after 1973. This was highly destabilizing to, to the region, of course, and in the wake of those conflicts, there were some dramatic breakthroughs, particularly Anwar Sadat going to Israel on a very dramatic trip. And so the United States was seen as the broker that brought these, these two together. And the peace treaty has, as you said, has held in place with several ups and downs in the relationship. And while it's been tenuous and sometimes a cold piece, it's been consistent. And that has been seen as very important. It supports one of the key interests of the United States in the region. And it has survived even, as you said, the Egyptian revolution. So during that time, the Israeli embassy in Cairo was uh, stormed. The Israeli ambassador left the country and it appeared that it might be in peril. Nevertheless, I think the interests of the two countries involved and the United States overrode any of the immediate heat of the moment and the immediate tumult of the moment. And we've seen it continue on now post-Morsi into the, the Sisi administration. So there are plenty of people who have, uh, have disagreements with the Camp David Accords. Nevertheless, it appears to be the best alternative of a wide variety of bad options. And so it, it stays in place. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about President Trump's foreign policy. A lot of people are still waiting to see, you know, how will he interact with this world leader or that world leader? How will he handle this international organization? And he just recently met with Egyptian President al-Sisi. It seems that the United States is taking a more defensive position on Israel on the world stage, supporting them maybe a little bit more explicitly than the Obama administration did. So how do you think the dynamic under the Trump administration between you know, Egypt and Israel is going to change? What are the changes from the Obama administration? What are the continuities? And you know, is this a place to watch in Trump foreign policy? Well, it's always important to see how the meetings between leaders go. There's certain things we can glean from that. We can pay attention to, to the way the messages are crafted uh, and the, the sorts of things that are on the agenda and the things that are, that are left off. So 
it's clear in the meeting between Presidents Trump and Sisi that the question of security, of counterterrorism, of stability, and of strengthening the economic relationship between the two countries is something that was very much at the fore. Other questions of human rights, internal questions about how the Egyptian government is handling dissent, its relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, and more of those sorts of things really were not part of that conversation. So that gives us a clear signal of where the, the priorities are and where they aren't, and, and it certainly indicates some shift from the Obama administration that was clearly concerned about the conduct of human rights in Egypt, the, the jailing of dissenters, the closing down of civil society organizations, etc. But I do think it's important to put this into the broader context of U.S. policy toward Egypt over the last several decades. And while there have been times when human rights under Jimmy Carter um, or democracy under George W. Bush, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice gave a famous speech at the American University in Cairo about the importance of democracy and democratization in Egypt and the broader Middle East, the emphasis has always veered toward security and stability. Though there have been differences in tone and differences in emphasis, over time, in the last three and a half decades, the U.S. has really focused on security and stability in the relationship with Egypt. So in that regard, President Trump isn't that far out of line. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the Obama administration, though the Obama administration also found ways to still maintain the military-to-military relationship. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Casey Candela, talking with James Ketterer about American foreign policy in the Middle East. So one of the first things to happen during the Trump administration was the raid in Yemen in which a Marine died. So how do you think Yemen is going to change under President Trump, if at all? For my listeners who might not know, like, why is the war in Yemen so important? And, you know, in a broader context, how is the U.S. working in Yemen and the United Nations working in Yemen? Are those two forces collaborating? Are they conflicting? Are they just making a bigger mess out of things? Admittedly, my understanding of Yemen is not as up to speed as I would like it to be. So talk me through it. What's going on in Yemen? Why should Americans care? Who were the key players? It's useful to put Yemen in the context of the broader region for a moment, too. And we can see that in several locations, we have not only conflicts that are happening, but conflicts that are drawing in outside forces, forces from within the region and forces from around the world. That is the case in Libya. It is certainly the case in Syria, and it is the case in Yemen. In Yemen, you have a group, the the Houthis, who are a Shia group, but also it's not just Shia versus Sunni. It's not just a sectarian conflict. They have internal grievances against the government. You have a government that has been forced out and is operating from afar. You have the Iranians that are in support of the Houthis, though it's not quite a proxy war, but they're certainly in support. And you have the Saudis who are actively engaged in combat on the side against the Houthis. The Saudis being a close ally of the United States also means that the United States is drawn into this. Now, the U.S. had already been involved in Yemen using drones, 
and other means to go after al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is seen as a high-priority target, um, having attempted to uh, carry out terrorist attacks against Americans and against the United States with the, the infamous underwear bomber. And so you have many different layers to this playing out at the same time, while also you have this enormous and heartbreaking humanitarian crisis happening, where people simply, amidst this conflict and amidst the collapse of the government and their ability to, to deliver services, simply are really on a knife's edge for survival. Not only because of the conflict and the violence of the conflict, but just because of a lack of food and water and the necessities of life. And so the ability to address that level of profound humanitarian crisis while the conflict rages on is extremely challenging. And the United States is a party to this, at least by default, in supporting the, the Saudis. And the UN is really largely constrained in being able to address this. So I think it's not very much um, in the news in the United States unless something happens like the raid that took place that resulted in civilian deaths and the death of an American service member. But day to day, this is looming as the next giant humanitarian crisis. And I fear that we will only see it make it into the headlines when it's so late in trying to address the kind of massive human suffering that is already taking place. Another humanitarian disaster that has been dominating the headlines, at least recently, is Syria. Talk me through the last couple days, from Secretary Tillerson making his comments about the Assad regime all the way up till yesterday and the most recent updates on how is the Security Council going to respond, how might the United States respond. I'm really interested in your analysis of how each event could be interrelated. With Syria, complexity is the name of the game. It's a highly complex situation. It's a dynamic situation and a profoundly tragic situation that has drawn in any number of actors in the region and beyond. During the early days of the, the uprisings in Syria, when the Obama administration said that the Assad regime must go, it's pretty clear now that there was no real plan to have the Assad regime go. There was an assumption that he was about to go. And then when he didn't go, there was no policy to get to a place where there would be a political resolution that would have Assad leave the scene. So Assad has hung on and now is hanging on with the, the support of the Russians and the Iranians. And so the United States administration was always reluctant to be drawn into the conflict with so-called boots on the ground. So while there was U.S. involvement, and there were attempts to, to fund certain rebel groups, um, many of them now famously unsuccessful, there was also a deep reluctance to get involved, even to the extent that when the Syrian government had previously used chemical weapons and crossed a red line that Obama had put down, the United States then did not act. The British government didn't act either. And in fact, the U.S. then coordinated with the Russians in instituting a deal 
that would see to the dismantling of the chemical weapon system that the Syrian government has. So when Secretary Tillerson then says, in so many words, that we're essentially going to live with the political reality that Assad will remain, in many ways that's just speaking out loud what many in Washington already had come to the conclusion of. And so how to really um, craft a policy then that can fit this new reality into the situation? What does that really mean vis-a-vis -vis the American coordination with Russia on the ground in Syria? And does that mean that the United States would coordinate with Iran, who's coordinating with the Russians on the ground in Syria? That's already a major challenge. Second is that even if Assad is going to remain, it appears, at least for the moment, that he does not have the capacity to be able to win the day and to, to really prevail. And so we have this intractable, unwinnable conflict that has drawn in many different actors into this bloody situation and dispersed many people, as well as killing and maiming many people. And then you have, in the midst of all this, a nerve gas attack that has created these horrible scenes of carnage. And as it relates to President Trump's uh, meeting with the, the King of Jordan and his statements at the White House, he laid down a very hard line about the Assad regime, indicating pretty clearly that he thought that the regime was responsible for this attack. And that may well be the case, but uh, we need to see the evidence. Who did this? why they did it, how it was done, and if in fact the Syrian government still has chemical weapons, where do we stand with the Russian agreement from several years ago, much less where do we stand with the, the idea that Assad will now stay on. If he would not only stay on, um, stay on and using chemical weapons, those two facts may in fact be just unsustainable for any American president to support. Because the theme of Fordham Conversations is about how Fordham people are doing things out in the world, how did your experience at Fordham inform you know, your life's path and your career? How has it shaped decisions you've made thus far? Well, coming to Fordham was enormously uh, important for me. I uh, grew up in a small town in, in upstate New York, and so I was interested in, in coming to New York City and then coming to Fordham and having the professors and the mentors here really made an enormous difference in the way that I was thinking about what I might do and what I actually ended up doing. I was a political science major here in the 1980s, and as I sought to add some area studies focused to my political science studies, I eventually took a course with uh, Professor John Intellis on the Middle East and North Africa. And I took that course just at the time that Lebanon was in the news every day because of the ongoing civil war there, American engagement in Lebanon, and all the other things that were also happening across the Middle East. And I, I found that as I took that course and then took more courses and took Arabic, took Islamic political thought with Father Ryan, and more, that what I was reading in the news I could then put into a broader context. It was making much more sense to me than just the news of the day. I had much more background to it, and I was 
then interested in finding out more. How could I be more engaged in this deeply fascinating part of the world? So when I left Fordham and I went to Tunisia and studied in Tunisia for a year at the Bourguiba Institute for Languages, I studied Arabic and I also learned French quite a lot while I was living in Tunisia and it was a really great experience. I went there right after the the first Gulf War and so it was also interesting to see how people would react to me about American policy, what they would have to say about policy but how they would make a difference between that American policy and me as an American and I found that uh, the hospitality, the the depth of the culture, the, the friendliness of the people um, all was really just so interesting to me and eventually I um, went on to, to graduate school and I, I spent time in living in Morocco and then much later I had the job living in, in Egypt for Amadeist and, and all of these I can track back directly to, to the great professors I had here at Fordham. I also started taking Arabic while I was here at Fordham. I still have that very first Arabic book that I used and uh, the political philosophy courses, but also the other courses that I took that were so important to my development, the English courses, the theology courses, and the great friends that I made here, the people that I lived with at Fordham. I lived with the, the same five other guys for all four years, and we're still great friends. And um, I, I think all of that just made for as good an experience as I could have possibly have hoped for coming from my little town in upstate New York. You've spoken about when you were overseas, people in other countries being very aware of what's happening in the United States. But here, it doesn't seem that that same awareness transfers. And how do you think international conflicts and issues and U.S. interests in foreign policy can play a larger role in the news cycle in America? Well, it's interesting that if you look back at the, the last several U.S. presidential elections, foreign policy uh, rarely comes up, and it's rarely seen as one of the deciding topics. And this has been the case, even though the United States has been involved in, in active combat over the last 16 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we have the U.S. military that is stationed in many parts of the world. What does that say? It says that politicians are being given the message, election after election after election, that it's really the domestic issues that make the difference that it is, as President Clinton said way back in 1992, it's the economy, stupid. And I think that's largely true still. But what we saw in 2016 is that certain issues about foreign policy did come up and were seen as important in the debates in the primaries and in the debates during the general election. So issues like trade, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, free trade in general, reviewing the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. What do we want with regard to free trade? And more broadly, what does that say about winners and losers in this era of globalization? Our relationship with China, the United States' relationship with Russia, and the various conflicts across the Middle East. These were, these were fairly consistently brought up throughout the election. What I don't think we have good data on yet is how much they really made a difference in how people cast their votes. But the fact that they were brought up to that extent, I think, tells us something 
about what people are, are seeking to know. And so to what extent does that send us now in different directions in terms of foreign policy? What lessons are to be learned from 2016? Clearly, there are many people in the United States who feel like globalization that we've generally been told was going to be wonderful and, and a fairly easy transition from the era of the Cold War was going to be quite beneficial. And what, what I think we see now is that it's been beneficial to some and not beneficial at all. In fact, it at least has the perception of being harmful to other groups in the population. And that there needs to be more attention paid to that and how to address those differences and those inequities. We live in a much more complex world. The old rules of the game from the Cold War really don't obtain anymore. And now we have to worry about many other countries that either possess nuclear weapons or seek to possess them, and the potential that n nuclear material could end up in the hands of non-state actors and that they would seek to detonate one as an act of, of terrorism. And this would truly be a cataclysmic event. These are the kinds of things that I think require deep and creative thinking within the foreign policy establishment. And the foreign policy establishment has largely felt themselves insulated from the electorate. There has to be ways to have an honest conversation with the American people and say, here are the real challenges we face. This is what it means to actually you know, decide to go into another military conflict. So few people serve in the military now that the consequences of military action are really kind of separated from most people's daily lives. And I think people need to be more deeply part of that decision-making process. I mean, there's no more difficult and daunting decision that we should make as a nation than to invade another country. Our inability to take that on board as an entire nation and understand those consequences, I think is something that requires leadership and requires some sobering conversations with the American people. I would like to thank my guest, James Ketterer, Dean of International Studies at Bard College and expert on the Middle East. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Casey Candela.